Despite a lack of natural ability, I did have the one element necessary to all early creativity, naivety. That fabulous quality that keeps you from knowing just how unsuited you are for what you were about to do. Steve Martin. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Hello and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, this is the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, as I am always, always, always. What a week. I really want to talk about some Silver Linings Playbook stuff, uh, of course, as always, but I definitely have to talk about, I just finished um, the second season, the as much as they have out of one of the best TV shows that I have seen in a long time. And that is uh, HBO's Hacks. This show was incredible, I have to say. The writing, the acting, um, all, even like the costuming, every part of this, I would say this is definitely a flawless TV show. Probably one of the best ones that I have seen in a long time. I would argue one of the best shows that came out last year. I'm partial. It is definitely about stand-up comedy and the stand-up comedy world, but I think anybody that has been a performer of any type of performer, live performance, and I am including um, that it could definitely be uh, people who maybe haven't performed for entertainment's sake. Uh, Public speakers, orators, business leaders, anybody that's had to give some type of presentation, there is something relatable in it Uh, and painful about it. It was one of the most beautiful, funny, dark comedies. Um, I drank it right up there with Barry, as far as like industry things, Atlanta. Hacks, I'm just a little more partial to because it is based on stand-up comedy world, which is a world that I know uh, slightly better than all those others, and is one that I definitely feel a part of and connected to. It was recommended to me by uh, Nick Cassano, who this is probably his weekly shout-out. We didn't get a review about last week's uh, podcast, or maybe we did, I don't know. Um, He's pretty busy. I know a lot of us are going pretty busy. Uh, Had an awesome talk with Conrad yesterday. Uh, Conrad being one of the other creators of the TV show that we've been working on for the last two years, and I'm very excited because next Tuesday... Tuesday, the, I'm guessing it's going to be like the 12th or something, going into the uh, Astro Studios to go check out some of the footage of what they had recorded when we did our filming, and we'll see how that is looking. But for right now, uh, definitely just sort of waiting nervously to see what kind of magic editing is putting together. Um... For, for our film project, our, our respective TV show. Uh, definitely doing a lot of things, looking into getting management for, for it. So anybody, if you have any uh, work for any of the big uh, lit- screenplay or literary management companies and you would like to help out <laughs> making this show a thing, feel free to throw a reference our way. Uh, we would be most appreciative, but... Um, not necessary, I promise. We were actually not 
in the the begging stage yet. I have a lot of a lot of excitement that these things are going to turn out the way I need them to. Uh, I'm just so excited that I sort of having a hard time with the waiting process right now. I'll say I have not watched Silver Linings Playbook this week. I've thought about it. Um, Katie had brought up that maybe we should watch uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is uh, one of my favorite movies of all time now. It's a movie that I would consider to be a flawless movie, and the one, one of the reasons I'm aware of it, we've talked about it numerous times on this show, is that it was uh, nominated for Academy Awards the same year that Silver Linings Playbook was. And because this is the point that I try to make most importantly of all time, uh, as much as I love Silver Linings Playbook, Clavon Janae Wallace should have won Best Actress for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Anyway, Katie has not seen the whole thing. She's seen part of it. Um, and so we were thinking about... Uh, just just watching the whole thing, but we were actually probably just going to make a day of it. One time, a very uh, um, Gulf Coasty, New Orleansy. They make some red beans and rice, and that's it. I guess we were just going to make red beans. Like that's that was the plan. But still, it, you know, make movies an experience. Um, you know, we watched uh, Silver Linings Playbook the first time while eating raisin bran. Um, we've eaten pizza while watching movies, uh, that had actors that probably love pizza. We've also eaten tacos while watching things that, um, people who eat tacos would watch. Right? So, we enjoy making, making TV and movies a fully immersive experience that can, that can be, like, more, um, more extensive than just visually and audibly absorbing the media that comes from the medium. I want, I, so great con conversation with Conrad yesterday. Um, I was, I was catching him up. I haven't had a good chance to talk to him about, uh, a lot of the stuff that's been going on in life, especially with the project and stuff that he was instrumental in, in starting. And so it was, uh, it was great to be able to tell him excitedly, get some feedback on some of the things, his feelings about it, too, because he's a very important part of the whole process. And I got some, some great ideas, too, about ways to proceed. Um, maybe some of the actors and actresses that we would like to approach uh, in possibly at least intending to be part of the series. Um, who would you love to see in a comedy series written by myself, Conrad, and Nick? Uh, give me your answers at silverliningsplaycast at gmail.com or hit us up on all the social media or you can give us reviews of previous episodes of this or um, you can just say hello or you can also uh, send us advertisements. We get lots of advertisements. I want to say most of the people that email in to us are actually wanting to help me with my SEO algorithms. And I, I'm not sure I actually trust them to do it. One, because from my extensive knowledge in scams and scamming, I don't believe these emails are coming from uh, personalized written emails from people. I think they are form emails, and I think they are bots. 
uh, a bot being slang, I believe. I'm not sure. I haven't done the research on this, but I believe bot is slang, a shortened abbreviation for robot. And that would be a reference for an algorithmic program uh, on in web space world in which, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a program that carries out a function such as uh, clicking on something or sending out an email so that a lot of these things are actually just automated and that there is no person behind them who is really just trying to, to sell me on these programs as much as just I am being, being targeted in email scams and mass marketing where they, they one, they don't really need SEO help. Here's the thing, right? Uh, you all know if you've been listening for any anyway. Oh, did I forget to tell you? This is uh, part eight of our special hundred parter, hundredth uh, episode. Also, we are well into July. It is the first week of July. The first episode of Silver Linings Playcast came out on the first of July, twenty twenty. So. It's sort of funny that this is the least excited week in which it could have been a two-year anniversary, and it's also the one in which I forgot to acknowledge that it might be a two-year anniversary, even though it's most legitimately likely to be the two-year anniversary that most people would recognize as the two-year anniversary of our episodes. But I'm just, um, I don't know. I think I'm over the anniversary thing. That's sort of the thing that happens uh, when when you stretch it out for over a month, when one twenty-fourth of the entire length of the podcast is devoted to celebrating what the two-year anniversary would be. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Also, let's bring up uh, real quick, I talked to, to my therapist this week about the anniversary effect, which is a very real um, thing. I learned about it, uh, and it is when something big, emotionally... Uh, tumultuous or significant in your life happens, you may have strong emotional feelings or connections to that thing, even if you were not consciously aware that it is a uh, date-time anniversary of that event. And this was really important knowledge for me to gain later in my life. I really only became aware of the anniversary effect in the last couple of years, probably Four years. I, I, in my head, I'm thinking like two years ago, but I'm also realizing that when I think about memories, I am basically not accounting for the last two years of my life. Every anything that I think of two years back from 2020, I still think of as two years back. Which I'm not trying to make a dumb joke about how this last two years was really long. It's really just how how my memory is processing memory. I stopped. I, I have been so not keeping track of time because there was so many reasons in which we lost a lot of our anniversary markers of time. Holidays existed, but they were definitely celebrated differently. Uh, big historic events, markers of time, um, even things like elections, which should be, you know... Um, Things that give us little anchors in history to have some reference to to historical uh, 
uh, flow of time and progression of time forward uh, both have been traumatic to people in and of themselves and also uh, media has grasped onto those items and sort of played them repeatedly to the point where the actual connection to a specific date gets somewhat lost in the constant reminder daily that they happened. Which I think is a really interesting thing to think about if you think about like how trauma affected Pat in Silver Linings Playbook uh, and The Silver Linings Playbook, right? Um, he, he clearly loses a lot of time and the difference is really significant in the movie and the book. I believe in the movie that Pat spends about eight months uh, in, in the institution, whereas in the book he spends five years away. The book goes into a really interesting sort of uh, observation about how, how memory... And the effects of changing time go on. He exits his treatment facility five years later and things have changed around him. The environmental conditions have changed around him. People's relationship statuses have changed around him. And yet he rejoins society right where he is able to, where he last remembers things. And I think a lot of us do this in some, in some weird way. We're all very much Pat Solitanos, Pat Peoples. Um, or at least we have been over the last couple of years. That is one of the great things about this story, about this book and movie, I think. I don't necessarily know if it is science to say that that is the way that society or, or humans always deal with things. But it would be probably highly accurate to say that is how a large, a significant, a significant portion of the population has dealt with things because that is the way the, the generations have been conditioned to respond to things, at least in the now. And, and that is largely symbolized by the success of these this movie and book right i don't think that they're necessarily explorations of these scientific things that weren't no okay follow along with me i sound like i'm talking a little mumbo jumbo right now but but listen all right so I'm, all i'm talking about is that society let's let's reduce it from society individuals often really resonate with media that they feel is representative of their personal stories. And so that's what I'm saying has happened right now, is that um, these things were popular and these things were loved because they are the type of thing in which uh, we found a connection, personally. I very much and sort of like I don't remember the difference between the last two years I had I, I messaged a friend um, just a couple days ago uh, I he was reading one of the scripts I wanted to and I, I one of the things I was trying to uh, be nice and check in with him and say like hey how you doing and I remember the last time that I had talked to him um, he had been going through something and I wanted to make sure that that was cleared up but then I also had this startling 
realization, oh no, I think the last time that I've actually talked to him might have been uh, multiple years ago and that whatever I was alluding to is not representative of the situation that he might currently be in. Um, I was, you know, not being responsible, uh, so I felt bad about that. It was a tiny thing, I think, and so it, it didn't, like, cause any problems, but it was just definitely a thing that I became aware of myself, that it's like, I am not really keeping up with these things, but it's, uh, I want to, I want to, for one time, I'm usually very accountable for for these things, but once in my life, I want to cut myself a little tiny bit of slack and be like, it's not uh, because I don't care at all. It really has been a little more difficult, I believe. Um, not like it's harder in the context of all of history, but as far as long as I have been alive, it is one of the most difficult times in my personal history, um, in the history of the world since I have been a part of the storyline to have that frame of reference for historical context. The, all, all history is historic. I always have a problem when people make, make uh, these proclamations on the news, in the media, or on social media, or anybody, really, saying, like, this is, um, you know, a truly historic time. Like, all, all history is historic. That is what, some of it is mundane, some of it is grandiose. And we happen to be living in a time where it feels like a lot of the stuff is big and significant. It's exciting. It's stimulating. It's, um, it's not all good. A lot of it is terrible. There have been times in which there was much smaller things. The scope of the problems, good or the situations, good or bad, affected smaller groups of people. And yet... And so they were less relatable and less in the, the public's consciousness. Whereas now, there are some really large, large events happening. Um, and yet, like, the, and, and also the 24-hour news cycle has, has put it in a way where it's like it keeps it in the forefront of our mind and the capitalist need for them to keep making themselves relevant as the source of information, um, keep uh, dramatizing new things and, and putting them out. So there's daily... Um, Katie and I were joking last night. Well, we weren't joking last night. We were playing uh, a thought game about um, what are some of the uh, TV shows and movies that do not hold up or that you would not like as much as you, you remember liking them. And this was actually a backwards question from what... Uh, from a more normal conversation we have about like what were things that you didn't like it it was a conversation that started about evolving musical tastes about how and I was talking about how I really got into country music when I started I really liked pop country music I listened to a lot I listened to um, uh, George's 94.9 The Bull all the time and I, and I, I did like that music I did I was a big fan of it um I'm, I always take an approach of, like, I don't like to be, like, I don't like things, so I won't say that I am, that I hate those things now. I want to say that, that because of my appreciation and understanding of music, uh, there are things that I appreciate more now. As I learned more about music, as I learned more about the history and listened to more, my tastes developed, 
So especially when I went back through the history of country music and I learned about the outlaw country uh, movement, the outlaw country musicians of the 70s, um, you know, really headed by uh, the um, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, they, they eventually formed the music supergroup, the Highwaymen, but, but more so just the, the Texans that broke away from the, the mainstream Nashville uh, music scene <coughs> uh, and created what would become known as the outlaw uh, country music movement, sort of sub-genre. Uh, my favorite ending up being uh, Towns Van Zant. And, um, in that, you know, he was, he's absolutely my favorite. He was a songwriter, uh, him and Chris Christopherson, both, I think really known more for their writing than, than more for their writing than their riffs. And here's the thing that they're not, that doesn't make them better. I'm going to use the example of Keith Urban is an interesting example. He is such a pop uh, country music star, and he was one of my favorites, one of the guys that really got me into country music. I have been to several of his live performances, and he always, um, he does little medleys of, of different hits from some of the other musical artists that have passed away during the previous year. And he's so good at it. It's interesting. I always say he is better than the music that he is known for. And, and part of the reason is when you hear him playing some of this more complex music, you're like, he's really good. Uh, but if you, but you know, I'll be, I'll be the first one to admit, if you listen to his songs that he is known for, they are pretty simplistic. They uh, have, um, you know, the, the, the three easy chords a lot. I mean, you should, you... I'm not going to say this makes a bad musician. In fact, he's, he's a very acclaimed um, and respected musician, and he's got a lot of money and fans and put out a lot of music, and I think and I really love his, his approach to, to music too. Um, but if, if I'm trying to learn songs to play on the guitar from your catalog, and I'm able to play most of them, at least the chords from them, it's probably simpler because I am not that great at guitar. I have taken, I always say I've taken 10 years of level one lessons. And what I always mean by that is that I, I kept taking lessons, but every, but like every year, or every cycle of classes, I would start over with a, with a brand new teacher and be like, I don't know anything about how to play guitar which would often leave me in a situation where I was I was starting over with the starting songs um, with the uh, level one music. I have been taught how to play Row Your Boat and Twinkle Little Star so many times like I didn't know how to play them already from the previous teachers I've, I've had. And that's fine. Um, because that, the, the reason that I've never learned to play guitar the level that I wanted to is, has nothing to do with, uh, my inability to do it. It has, it's my knowledge that I, I'm not really a practicer. Um, 
I do practice things that I love. I just know with guitar, with, with music, that's the thing you really have to, you have to put in some type of consistent practice if you're my kind of person. Some people don't. This is not, uh, not how everybody has to do their music, but I'm, I'm a, a student type learner. And what I mean by that is there's different kinds of learners. And I'm the kind of person that likes to take classes. I like to have as much information about something as I can have before I just uh, dive right into it, right? Um, and so this is a perfect example of uh, something where I knew, like, I'm, I know myself well enough and I'm sort of honest with myself enough to know I'm not really, and I never have put in enough effort. I've played with a guitar a lot. Um, I have spent countless hours just strumming around. I used to, it used to be one of my favorite uh, late-night activities where I would just um, sit in my basement and, and try to teach myself some songs, but I never wanted to go through learning the actual fingerings, the chord progressions. Um, I just wanted to strum and make something that sounded good enough as fast as possible. And so it was fine. That, and that, you know what? For plenty of people, that's, that's fine. The only problem was that I wanted to be a better musician than that. Uh, and I've never sort of reached that, that potential. And that's okay, because you know what? There might be time for that at some point if that becomes a priority. But it's not a priority right now. My priority is storytelling. And I can't tell you how much I've, I have been reinvigorated to do it from watching Hacks on HBO. This show was incredible. There, there was so much realism in characters. It's, it's interesting. You, you have to understand that, the, that this is quite a show when both of the main characters can be so unlikable and flawed, and yet you want to watch. You can't stop watching them. Uh, we watched the entire season two yesternight, and we also had watched like two more episodes of the finale, the final two episodes of season one, just to to get ready to watch season two last night, and, and we couldn't couldn't stop. And it was this weird thing of like, this is so real. We both related Katie from from music and me from comedy because it it um it didn't matter what the characters were performing. It was about the story. It captured so much realism. Uh, I want. I'd love to to talk to Nick about this soon because he was saying, I, I think, don't let me quote, my, if I'm wrong about this, I believe he didn't like season two as much as season one. Um, I could be wrong. I could have that backwards. But he was, also, he was also saying that they set themselves up oddly in a way that seemed like they weren't, weren't going to have a season three. They have just recently, in the last uh, week or so, been picked up for a season three, but I was watching it with this whole belief that they weren't going to go into another season, and I don't know how I feel about another season. I am super excited, and I think if anybody can pull it off, that these writers definitely should be able to pull it off, because they are um, they're definitely people that know what they are doing. Uh, 
they were, um, like, if, if they could, here's the thing. Here's what makes me scared about a season three. I, I saw the places that they gave themselves options leading up to the season finale of season two. They gave themselves a couple developing storylines in which they could create a conflict to build into bigger conflicts that would become the through lines for season three. But they ended up tying up those loose ends in the season finale of season two. Um, They sort of gave the characters their redemptions, their satisfying conclusions which um, you know it like and it felt so good they did it flawlessly there's so many shows I've seen in which I feel like I don't I feel like they've they've done themselves disservices by going back to the well to try to get more when it's already been tapped and I don't know how accurate that is. But like, again, I said, um, I was blown away by the quality of this show from the very beginning, from the first time I watched it. So if anybody can do it, this, this, uh, group of writers can make there's, and there's places I would love to see it go. Um, I definitely think there is interesting things to be seen and done with the characters. I'm just, I'm just nervous. I'm just nervous because it was so good. Right? And I don't... I don't really know. So I want to compare it to some of the other HBO shows um, or things that we've talked about, too. I do want to say, it. Um, even if they did give themselves the options because they didn't know whether they were going to get picked up or go another season, they did it even more cleanly than Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. Harry Potter series, um, which I know was filmed and a totally different thing, but I feel like they... And they also had, ran into a different problem because that was based on books, and you're never going to be able to fit in everything that you have from all the books into a film series. You run into two problems a lot of times where it's like you either will break up the last film into multiple films and then they might be both a little bit too lean on story or you can try to stick too much in a story and then you run into uh, just feeling like none of the things that are, none of the plots that are resolving uh, had the proper amount of build up. I feel like that was people's chief complaint about Game of Thrones. And now we've, we've all talked, not, not even just us, uh, everybody. There's a fan base, like, because I, I came to this world 10 years too late. Um, there's, there's been plenty of discussion. We don't need to have it about why Game of Thrones felt rushed At to some people. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, and then you run into... Um, so people were complaining the Game of Thrones just wrapped up way too fast. They put all these things in place and then just boom, boom, boom. They're, they're burning through plot ref, uh, resolutions and storyline conclusions. 
at the end. Uh, of course, I've talked about the way that I don't, I don't necessarily feel that way about it. Um, then also, I think people like the Harry Potter ending a little more than I'm saying I did. Uh, I didn't hate it. I thought it was a great series, but also I feel personally like they started bringing up all this stuff that I didn't feel like I had enough background on when I wanted, right? I feel like uh, there were they, they could have raised the questions about Harry Potter's paternity uh, earlier in the series. Uh, maybe they did if I went back and I rewatched those things, understand. I, th I thought there was going to be, it was a more episodic film series too, though. I did not realize that the movies would play into a, a larger uh, overarching storyline. I sort of thought you would watch each of the Harry Potter movies and you'd be like, oh, this is a collection, this is year one at their school. This is year two with a little bit of through line. And as you start going through the series, I think you hit movie three or four and, you, and, and that's when it really is driven home that, oh, they are building these things into a giant battle. So there were some things I was not looking for in the same way. Right? Uh, I, talk, I talk about, I think everybody in Game of Thrones knew that this was always something that was going to be built in some, into something from the very first episode. The, the whole first season is basically setting up the trajectory of this series. It's, it's introducing characters, it's helping you understand the politics of the kingdoms and the history of it so that you understand. It's all, it is all building. Um, the, the Harry Potter movies are like a sports movie and a teen comedy in, in movies three and, and four, right? Um, it, gives you, it gives you the world, but it's just visually giving you the world. So I got to, to episode the, the final movie and they start having all this backstory and flashbacks. I, and I think here, the use of flashbacks is probably one of the best examples of when writers are trying to um, put in storyline that, and it's not always their fault that they didn't have time to get in earlier. Because these are long movies too. They're all uh, two, two plus hour movies. Right? So now I'm saying that to say that uh, Hacks is a half-hour comedy show. Some of the episodes are a little longer. Some of them, I, th I believe, run 40 minutes. The first episode might be an hour, the season premiere, but it is pretty fast-paced. Like, they stop in each moment um, to have their, their little part of the, the storyline, uh, but they keep it moving and and by the end you realize how much ground they have covered but it feels valid it feels uh like this beautiful beautiful conclusion um where they they tie together these these characters that uh you really are not meant to like you you sympathize with them i think you empathize with them at the beginning because you see their their character flaws are real they are relatable but they're not nice they're all their character flaws are things of, there was there's an episode where um the two characters are sitting at a, a steakhouse or something and the young girl reads an email that she had sent uh to um the gene smart character and it is sort of a, a scathing 
personal indictment of all her character flaws, and yet uh, it's a very honest and sort of heartfelt email. And plot-wise, it's supposed to be like this this really mean moment, but it's not wrong. And it causes both of the characters to look at themselves. And it's sort of the kind of honesty that, that uh, as much as I hate to say it because it wouldn't feel good, but how many of us actually need that kind of sort of no BS assessment about what are we doing wrong? How can we fix things that we are not aware of, right? In, in the end, that is one of the most loving things. Now, it might have been done in a moment of, of anger, which is a plot device for the show, but to give a person the personal real, realizations of things that they can improve or work on, uh, because that's the wonderful, this is why the characters are able to find redemption at the end, because there's not a judgment about whether these people are good or bad people. Everybody is the hero of their own storyline, right? Even a well-written story, even, even the antagonist should believe that they are doing the right thing for them, the proper thing, right? Uh, whether something is good or bad really ends up in about the perspective of which side we are seeing this thing from. So to get that much uh, truth means that there is that, that far to go in your character. If somebody is able to show you that, oh my goodness, I have been a selfish uh, headliner for years and not taken the, the um, conditions and circumstances of the people that work for me into account, what does that mean? Yes, it might be very hurtful when you hear it, but that means that you can improve. Will you? Maybe not. I, that's a totally different sort of philosophical question. Can we get better? Uh, but will, are we able to? Is there that room for growth? There's always that room for growth. I really believe that there is always uh, room for progress. It, it's one of the hardest things about making progress is that it's not fair. It doesn't feel good. We're not rewarded for it. The reward for it is becoming neutral. The reward for undoing something you've done wrong is just being back on a level playing field. Whereas sometimes the reward, the personal hedonistic rewards for taking the easy route or doing something for yourself uh, feels in the moment um, much more stimulating, much more rewarding, right? And so this is why um, it is very hard to make these character changes. And I, I say character, they're personal changes on our own. Uh, sometimes you need a catalyst, an outside, or a support network, or a tribe, or something. If you look, Pat has no intentions of changing who he is because he thinks he's doing the right thing. The, and the characters really, um, until he meets Tiffany and she grabs him, I'm saying that sort of metaphorically too, and sort of snaps, snaps him back to reality, gives him perspective of how he appears 
crazy to everybody else. But until then, he is on a trajectory where he is sort of honoring his own best sense of what he should be doing. You, you think about it, right? He's trying to get back uh, to win back his ex-wife. He has totally sort of blanked out on the uh, assault that he uh, committed. He has has forgotten about the traumatic experiences that made him upset with her at the first time. In the book, you find out way more about uh, how they had a really rougher relationship than than uh, is portrayed in the movie, him and his ex-wife, Nikki. And so you see this, this man who, and that's why he's the protagonist of the story. He's trying to right the wrongs of his past, and the film doesn't give us the full context of what is right. We learn that along with the main character, which, and now that's why I'm tying it into reality. Sometimes we are learning the context of our own what is right as we go through this journey. Like I was talking about my musical taste earlier, how many times have we thought uh, at one point in our life we were doing the right thing? And this is not to say looking back makes it the wrong thing. As your awareness, as your experience increases, your uh, palate refines, your taste refines. There is um, a scientific study, which I'm going to cite without any actual scientific studying, because uh, I vaguely remember it from some book that I'm taking on more authority than if it had been an internet article, even though there is no validity to anything I'm saying right now, how when uh, culinary students were asked to describe food that they were experiencing, um, it actually began to taste better and more complex as they learned more words to describe it. And if you think about that, how many times, this isn't going to sound like the silliest example to go with all this, but, but I can tell you this from my personal experience. How many times has there been like a smell that I could not identify? Uh, garbage has a really, um, this happens with garbage <laughs> a lot, uh, that there will be a smell and I'm like, I can't even tell if this is a sweet, delicious smell or a disgusting smell until I figure out what the smell is coming from, right? Having worked in many restaurants before, this is a thing that happens all the time. Like some, you'll, you'll catch a whiff of something that is breaking up the mundanity of just normal air and, and you'll notice it and it'll be like, mm, that is, I, I don't even physically know whether to feel nauseous or feel uh, enticed by this until you figure out what it is. And I'm, I'm not saying this as like, this is just my uh, experience. This is what a lot of us experience. We don't understand what we're experiencing fully and how to take it until we learn the vocabulary to use it. And that's why it's such an important thing to learn about these things. There's even, even the soft science of psychology. When I knew nothing about it, I always thought this is a useless thing of people trying to fix people we don't know the things we don't know until we start to learn them. There are plenty of things that are not valid that are put out as facts into the world, but there is also uh, plenty of things that we don't know are very valid until 
we are enlightened a little bit into them. So Pat doesn't know he's wrong. He's not ever, and I'm gonna I'm gonna God on a weird limb, and and this is not supposed to be like a moral judgment of his character, uh, because according to writing and perspective, I am right about this. Um, he's always right. He's always the good guy if you're watching the story from his storyline. Even though if you step back as an audience member and you watch specific moments, and you're like, oh, he's an absolute jerk right there. Oh, he's wrong right there. He shouldn't have said that. But to him, he is always doing his right thing, uh, and that's why he's overall a good character. He's always trying to do the best thing from where he is at the time. Now, this is not to mean that there, there can be situations in which people are so off and they know so little about the world that they are terrible people to the rest of the world all the time. I hate to use the big historical, uh, you know, the big, the big figure from history that everybody always cites in every argument as sort of the uh, moral barometer of worst person in the world, but, uh, you know, it's the best example in this, this case, right? Attila the Hun. Every time you bring up Attila the Hun in an argument about uh, killing the most people in history of all time, um, you know, he did that, uh, and that was probably a bad, th I'm, hmm, I should probably make a stronger position than probably a bad thing. That was a bad thing. He was a naughty man from history. Um, but that's because we have sort of made this societal agreement in existence, if you're going to exist and keep existing, that it is not right to uh, kill other people. And he was one of the, the biggest murderers of all times. Um, Nero, the uh, Roman emperor, who is really no, this is not supposed to be a history thing either. I think we were listening to a history podcast before this, and now I'm trying to sound way smarter than I am. Uh, but I think anybody who knows, uh, nobody that is, would record a hundred-parter of anything is smarter than they think that they are. Um, but also, I'm going to to go back into that. I'm currently the protagonist of my own storyline, of this podcast storyline. So I'm also never wrong. Uh, and if you think I am wrong, feel free to hit me up at Silver Linings Playbook. No, no, don't hit me up at Silver Linings Playbook because that email, I don't know where that's going to go. That's not, that's not, you, you guys know, Silver Linings Playcast at gmail.com. Uh, you know how I know it's Gmail? You guys know. We watched the, the Three Amigos uh, this, this week, um, or last week, too. Again, I, I told you, I, I don't have great frame of reference for when things happen anymore, right? Uh, times, dates, and places are meaningless. What do we, what do we, where are we? Here. And when are we? Now. And does anything else exist? Who knows? I'm not even, I'm not even concerned about that because... I can't even know the entire scope of existence in this moment. And that's why I was saying that I think, uh, yeah, Hex is one of the best TV shows that I've seen over the last uh, couple of years. As soon as it got done, 
we watched. Now, I, I got to get super excited about this. You may or may not have heard about this show. I had a vague recollection that it was a thing from the title and from the cover art, but I had I did not know anything about this show. So we started watching a show called Pushing Daisies after it, and it is amazing Nicholas Cage and uh, <laughs> so I, there's a specific kind of show that I have really enjoyed. Some of some of the standout, my favorite shows in all of life have been uh, Twin Peaks and Gilmore Girls. And there was I never could put a finger on why I liked both of them. And in, in some weird way, I felt like they were connected. And when I did a little research, I found there's a lot of connections between those two shows. Right? Um, not. And I'm not talking about just like happenstance. <coughs> the creator of Gilmore Girls, actually there's a lot of articles about how much she loved Twin Peaks and wrote so many Easter eggs into Gilmore Girls for Twin Peaks fans. If you watch the very first episode of Gilmore Girls, there is uh, a reference where um, Rory even like says in a weird voice, he's like, it's wrapped in plastic. Uh, there is like seven characters from the Twin Peaks show that become different characters in the Gilmore Girls world. On uh, um, So like it's it's very deliberate. It's not one of these things that I just know, but, but it's also never called out. You, you would have to do a little bit of research just to find out what these things are. Otherwise you'd be watching it and being like, oh, is that connected? Now, I am probably going to spend the next five years of my life doing a deep dive trying to find some connection because there has to be some connection. There has to be between uh, this show, Pushing Daisies, and David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Um, the funny thing is, immediately when I see it, now this, I, I, I think it, um, it was a uh, 2008 show. Uh, and before that. It was before that? Slightly Seven, the 2007-2008 uh, Hollywood writer strike was why it didn't get a third season. Ah, alright. So it came out and it was um, it is one of the shows on the list of things like uh, Firefly, Freaks and Geeks, things that have built sort of a, a cult following but never really got to see its, its conclusion it deserved. And this one is because it came out before 2008 but its season 3 would have come out when the Hollywood writer's strike was going on. Uh, so it just sort of didn't get renewed and disappeared on a, on a cliffhanger, um, which is absolutely tragic. And I'm saying that having only watched two episodes of it, but it is, it is magical. It is so unique and different from anything I'm, I've ever seen. Uh, and yet like it feels familiar too. There's, there's a lot of things about it. When I was, watching it, I, I was instantly looking at the cast list, looking for anybody that might have been a writer or producer uh, from from Twin Peaks. And again, I haven't found the, the connection yet, but I'm sure there has to be, even if it's not written. If not, I'm going to make one up over the next couple of weeks and just come back and pretend like I found the research and you guys aren't going to call me on it because I've put out so much other uh, fake information on this podcast. I don't even know how this podcast, you know, 
We've spent the last month and a half saying that it may or may not be the two-year anniversary of this podcast, and I, and I have done no, I have not been able to more conclusively decide whether it is. I know we're well over two years now, not well over two years, but we we have calendarly been recording longer than a two-year period. So we already have have the two-year anniversary episode. You guys can listen to whichever episode you do, you want as our 200. That's not even important. The more important thing is we're on our 100th episode. 100, this is the eighth part of our 100-parter episode. Anyway, from the very beginning, the first, the first thing when I, when we, the, the moment that Pushing Daisies starts, the thing that really hit me, um, the first thing it evoked was uh, Tim Burtony. Feel. It's not a Tim Burton thing. Um, I'll tell you the person associated with it, uh, Barry Sonnefeld, was one of the executive producers. He co-created it with a, another person who I was not familiar with. But aesthetically, visually, it's very obvious and clear, um, his influence on it. Um, it, uh, it reminds me a lot of, and it's funny, some like, some like kid's book story. I was, I was thinking of... Uh, like the Madeline books or Coraline or any other uh, girls' names that end with Ayn that were used for uh, children's books or something because there is a narrator and it's told in a very fairy tale-esque way. Um, and yet it's very dark. It's really weird too. It's, it's available on HBO Max. So if, if you're interested in, in checking it out, uh, you should definitely at least watch the trailer. The trailer has um, sold me uh, so hard on it. And then it's a, and it's a great pilot because it's a sort of a complex, uh, fantasy, uh, rule system to put in place. And, but they just sort of talk you through it in a way that is, that helps you understand it. And then they start telling stories with this mechanic. Uh, and it, again, it's so unique and fascinating. Like it's, it's familiar. It definitely existed in a world where other mythology has, has existed, so that, but it just, it has its own little elements, and the, the cast is really great. Um, there is a sort of theatrical quality to it. The dialogue is very, it, it, again, it's hard for me to explain. I'm going to say it reminded me a little bit of Letterkenny. Uh, there's a weird cadence to it. It's, it does not sound like Law & Order detectives just talking with each other. There is a little bit of Shakespearean sort of, uh, and isn't it kind of crazy that that Shakespearean became its own subcategory of like stylist? Like he had that big of an influence on things, and he might have just stolen everything from uh, Marlowe. I don't know. I don't get into that. Um, Shakespeare is sort of like the Elvis of, uh, the theater world, um, which interestingly enough, there is an Elvis movie that just came out. I think it, uh, stars Tom Cruise and it's called Top Gun. Uh, no, that's, I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably not. I, again, didn't fact check myself on any of this. Um, but anyway, I think, uh, we haven't really stayed on topic and, and, uh, this is probably time to wrap up because I've got a bunch of other stuff to do because I'm getting ready, uh, for 
bunch of stuff. Got to write, got to revise. If anybody wants to read a, a pilot that I've written and give me notes, it's not the one that I've been working on. It is a different one I've been working on, and we'd love that feedback. But uh, anyway, thanks. Thanks. Uh, if you have any comments or questions or feedback you feel like is important about this episode, this was a really weird episode. Uh, I really meant to talk about the anniversary effect the whole time. Because um, this is my personal uh, anniversary of probably one of the worst days of my life that has affected the last 14 years of my life. And I'm going to therapy for it. But, uh, you know, we're out of time for this episode. So um, thanks for tuning in this week. And tune in next week and every week as long as we keep as long as we, we still want to do this podcast. Um, as far as I know, it is the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Uh, until next time, we will see you down the road at Excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping Kenny G really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast.